The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it isn't just that prices at the grocery store are a little higher or it's a little harder to get car parts but that you have to send your husband or your son to the front lines for cannon fodder. And that is something that everybody knows that's what they're going for. Like there is not really any doubt about what these men are being sent to the front for. They know they're not gonna get any training. They're not getting any equipment. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 3rd, 2022. There's been a lot going on in Russia, a partial mobilization, protests, a mysterious explosion underwater along the Nord Stream pipelines, and, most recently, the annexation of seized Ukrainian territory in a bizarre ceremony in Moscow. To go over it all, I sat down with Julia Yaffe, currently of Puck News, one of the most astute Russia watchers in the news business, and Alexander Vindman, Lawfare's Pritzker military fellow, and a former Eastern Europe and Russia specialist for the NSC. They were actually two separate conversations, but I knitted them together into one. We talked about the explosions along the Nord Stream pipeline, about which the two have very different instincts. We talked about the protests, we talked about the annexations, and we talked about the threat of nuclear escalation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 3rd. What's going on in Russia with Vindman and Yaffe? So we've got a whole lot of stuff going on related to Russia and the Ukraine war, and I wanted to cover three broad topics with you. The annexations that took place on Friday, the partial mobilization that began a week earlier, and the explosions in the uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines so let's let's take them in reverse order and start with the annexations. I'm interested for your sense of why these are important for Vladimir Putin. The world will not recognize them. They don't change the situation on the ground militarily. Why does it matter to the Russian government whether it calls 
these four additional oblasts uh, part of Russia as opposed to occupied Ukrainian territory? Well, the first thing is that it allows after seven months of war that have been pretty unsuccessful by any measure for Russia, it allows Putin to show something to his population that he has accomplished at least something. He has not denazified Ukraine. He has not toppled the regime. He has not done pretty much anything that he has he had set out to do back in February, but at least he can show his population and more importantly, the so-called party of war, the hardliners that are to his right and that have been putting a, a significant amount of pressure on him over the summer to do more and in their kind of in their sense to stop fighting this war with one hand tied behind their back, he can now show them something, that he has accomplished something. He has now added to Russia's territory. He has expanded Russia's empire, while today, of course, decrying colonialism, ironically. So there's that. And the second thing is that he can now say that this is Russian territory that Russia is defending rather than Ukrainian territory that it is attacking. And so when Ukrainian troops go to liberate it, in the coming days and weeks, it will, in Russia's mind and the Russian quote-unquote legal system, it will look like an attack on, on the Russian homeland rather than just a movement back and forth across the battlefield, which would, in Putin's mind and in the mind of Russians, justify more extreme measures because this is now tantamount to Rostovsk Oblast, Moscow, etc., that this isn't just some battlefield territory. He could now declare a victory, even though it's a hollow victory. On paper, he now expanded uh, Russian lands. He's that great gatherer of lands. There are four additional regions that, that now fall under Russian control. And even if they can't really hang on to him, he could claim that as uh, some sort of win. And then negotiate, you know, attempt to get the uh, Ukrainians to negotiate. The other thing he could do is justify a basis from which to potentially further escalate. And that would be moving beyond this special military operation to uh, a general mobilization or declaration of war based on Russian lands being attacked. So it gives them some additional room to then rally the Russian population around this notion of defending Russian lands, that Russia, as it's claimed throughout its history, is not the aggressor. It only goes to war to defend itself. It's one of those critical kind of narratives about Russian, about Russian history, about Russian uh, war making that, you know, he's, he's playing towards. Beyond that, I think there's supposed to be a warning that it's supposed to warn off uh, a Western support for Ukraine. That's not going to happen. I think that, you know, whether whether he realizes it or not, he probably should at this point, because if anything, the West has kind of matched his escalation with some sort of escalation, not symmetrically, but still ma matching his uh, escalations with resolve. Uh, beyond that, I really don't know what else he might be thinking, because if you asked me about two weeks ago before this referendum was announced, 
I would have said that it's it would be folly for him to pursue this course of action, mainly because as a huge bluff, his bluff would be called. He'd he'd have to go kind of all in, uh, and that would be particularly dangerous because he doesn't really have much more wiggle room for escalation beyond kind of nuclear weapons of mass destruction. And he's not really interested in going that direction yet. And it actually waters down the unique status of Crimea as Russian territory. Now with all these additional annexations, I don't think that Zelensky or the other Ukrainian elites would be as open to this idea of uh, setting aside the question of the Crimea question and um, letting it kind of play out over the long run with kind of a diplomatic course of action. As Zelensky has said multiple times, he was prepared to do. So he's actually, Putin's harmed his own kind of position here. Crimea was formally annexed. It became Russian territory, according to only the Russians and, you know, some fringe other governments. But whereas these other regions were separatist controlled in the Russian language, now they're all in the same kind of basket and warning off Ukraine from liberating Crimea is undermined. And when you say more extreme measures, this has been accompanied by a certain degree of nuclear saber rattling, which is by no means unheard of uh, for Russia, particularly since the beginning of the war, but does seem to be alarming people in a way that it perhaps didn't in February. Do you see more extreme measures here? Is that a euphemism for nuclear escalation or are there more extreme measures short of nuclear uh, force that Putin has at his disposal? Yes, is the answer. You saw that already in the lead up to today's signing ceremony. You saw a convoy of civilian cars that was bombed in the Zaporozhye region where about 30 people, 30 civilians were killed when a massive missile landed where these civilians were congregating to register to go into occupied Russian-occupied territory and either rescue relatives or to get stuff and take it back out. And, and the scenes were just horrible. The, the Russians have started really stepping up their uh, stepping back up I should say their attacks on on civilians in Ukraine uh, in the lead up to to Friday's signing ceremony so that's that's one thing Putin has also talked in recent days about going after civilian infrastructure inside Ukraine going after <laughs> electric uh, power plants uh, we saw, uh, Russian forces hit a dam in Kriverich, which is uh, Zelensky's hometown, which is, I think, not a, not a coincidence at all. And Russian forces hit this dam repeatedly, which caused the town to flood. So I think, A, we're going to see more stuff like that. And B, the, you know, the, the nuclear threat was not an idle one back in February either. I just think that it is more of a real threat now because he's doing far worse now. It has been seven months of him doing badly. And the worse he's doing on the battlefield, the more likely he is to resort to some kind of nuclear power play. And 
it's his only kind of way out, I think, in his mind out of out of the corner that he's increasingly backed into. There was an excellent piece by an amazing Russian journalist, independent Russian journalist named Farida Rostamova that was printed in the Moscow Times in its English version. And it was the headline was taken from a quote of, of a source that she has close to the Kremlin. And it was Putin always chooses escalation. And I think that really is kind of the nub of the issue and has been all along. So do you think the when you say the nuclear threat was not idle in February and it's not idle now, Putin has been more careful indeed than in word about escalation involving the West. And he knows very well that any actual nuclear escalation as opposed to talk of it is a big shining red line uh, for Western governments, including the United States. At this point, is he just so backed into a corner that he doesn't care? Or is it a, is this still something that it's just a lot easier for him to talk about than actually to contemplate doing? Oh, uh, the other thing I should say is that, you know, there are other steps in between, you know, he can hit, he can still hit you know, the the depots through which NATO countries are supplying Ukraine with weapons, for example. But there there are a whole range of options. He could, let's say, hit a gas pipeline in the you know, in Danish waters or just off of Danish waters, maybe. But I, I do think right now it is talk, uh, and I think it is intended to be a kind of psychological escalation. And it's intended to get into the heads of Westerners who are afraid of a direct war with Russia, even though, I mean, there is already a direct war with Russia happening for all intents and purposes. It is to kind of make the uh, Western public and Western leaders think twice about how, you know, how much they actually want to support Ukraine, whether they want to force Ukraine to the uh, negotiating table I don't think Putin is backed into a corner enough just yet to use a nuclear weapon, but that's not to say that he won't get there. I think it's certainly foreseeable. Uh, he's really not doing well, and I don't think this mobilization is going to help him all that much. I mean, I'm concerned, but I'm not cons- overly concerned, uh, primarily from a standpoint of indications and warnings, what we call an INW. Uh, I don't think we've hit some of the um, the benchmarks, which I'm happy to expound on here in a second. But I would also go back to this point that uh, this is not just what Putin's been doing since the beginning of, of this major escalation in 2022. He did the same thing back in 2014 uh, when you know he annexed Crimea and he, he's, he did some nuclear signaling to warn off uh, a uh, kind of Western response, uh, what he what he would call Western interference. So uh, this is an on. This has been a long kind of, often played trump card for Putin, to uh, try to get the West to back off, uh, not take action in response. Now, with regards to this, the potential for a nuclear escalation here, there's. I still think that he's a uh, logical actor. In in certain ways, he will push as far as he can without directly risking his regime survival. So that means the, there is a hard limit to attacking NATO because that would have direct implications to his regime. 
he's still bound by this ironclad doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Nobody wins a nuclear war. Uh, and then that the follow-on question would be, well, what does that mean for Ukraine that doesn't have a nuclear deterrent? Well, Ukraine is 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 gotten some interesting coverage from the U.S. and the West now. The rhetoric around what would happen in case of a nuclear employment from the from the U.S. from this administration, the Biden administration, has been that it would be a complete game changer and ch- ch- entirely changed kind of the 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 future conduct of this war, which could be perceived as a signal that NATO would get directly involved. It could be perceived as a signal that NATO could go after kind of the Black Sea Fleet or wherever these uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapons originated from. It adds a huge element of strategic ambiguity, which is a, which is a pretty powerful doctrine that makes Putin wonder what could be the end result of the scenario. Does it mean the thing that he most wants to avoid, which is uh, regime-ending kind of war. He has to have a pretty high degree of confidence before he plays that nuclear card. And even there, uh, I think there are some things that are that are co- currently complicating his, his decision-making. Where would he use a nuclear weapon? He doesn't have very high confidence that he could deliver, or his military at least, doesn't have a very high confidence that they could deliver a nuclear payload freely anywhere in Ukraine. They would have to potentially use a hypersonic, this uh, Kinjal system that they have, uh, you know, relatively small, modest amount of to be quite certain that they get it to the target. The traditional cruise missiles that they have are not an effective delivery mechanism. They're only about 30% effective in reaching a target. That means you would need to potentially fire three nuclear weapons in order to have one of them kind of get through uh, in just a kind of mathematical terms. Uh, And three nuclear weapons is a major escalation, whereas one is a a major escalation in itself, but, you know, different than firing multiple nuclear weapons. So that means you would have to potentially employ it around the front lines, maybe along the coast in a place like Odessa, which would be a a huge escalation. Uh, And a place like Odessa would have a, a massive impact, but almost anywhere else that there are fighting formations that he's trying to have like some sort of military effect on. It's actually not going to be decisive uh, because there have actually been some good, interesting articles about what happens if you use a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield. What kind of effects does it have? They're rather limited. The Ukrainians are operating out of armored vehicles that were built to withstand pretty much everything minus a direct nuclear blast. So if you're within 500 meters, you're you're pretty much toast. But anything further out has a very good chance of survival, including the, the the folks outside of that radius. There are positions that are dug in. So the military effects of using one tactical nuclear weapon are not, are not decisive. Uh, so it's mainly a signaling tool with a huge, huge blowback. So I think uh, I don't want to be dismissive of the fact that there could be a nuclear use, but it's uh, it's still a very improbable notion there would be other things that we would potentially see. I would imagine we would see a declaration of war, like and this converting from a, a special military operation to a, uh, a, you know, a defensive war of some sort. Sorts that would be a pretty a big indicator. We would probably see a whole bunch of like you know civil defense exercises, nuclear readiness exercises. Uh, we would see some other kind of maybe we might see a chemical use along the way as a precursor to kind of say the next step is a nuclear weapon. 
we might see these types of things unfold beforehand. So we still have some headroom before, you know, I start to get really, really anxious. Now, at the same time, this is probably the most dangerous it's been uh, in terms of uh, what the probabilities are for, for nuclear war. And it's deeply unfortunate that we allowed the situation to kind of get here. When I say we allowed, I mean the United States taking this very, very kind of slow, methodical view of uh, ramping up Ukrainian capabilities to defend themselves instead of slamming the door on a Russia being able to achieve its military objectives earlier in the in this war before Putin put as much credibility in it, before he put as much regime stake into this war, before uh, you know, he, get, he ended up gaining some sort of footing with an Eastern campaign that clawed a little bit of territory. This was foreseeable in, in certain ways with a longer kind of uh, military campaign between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, we didn't do enough to, to avert it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So let's talk about the mobilization. He uh, announced a mobilization more than a week ago now, that was supposedly limited to reservists. It's clearly in practice not limited to reservists, but is kind of a, you know, dragooning of every male, particularly of a of a Caucasian or minority uh, complexion uh, that security forces can kind of get their hands on. It's causing a huge exodus of people. How much of this do you think the government anticipated? And how much of this is a reaction among the public that has caught them by surprise? I think it's the latter. I think the feedback mechanism between the public and the state has been broken for a very long time, which is what happens in dictatorships, especially in dictatorships like this one, where they, you know, they drink their own Kool-Aid. Putin and the people around him really believe the stuff that they see on TV, which is also the stuff that they have put on TV. And I think that is kind of the danger of pacifying your population to such an extent that they say that they, you know, they know to tell pollsters, they know to say that they support the war, but when push comes to shove and, you know, when they actually have to do something to support the war, when it isn't just that prices at the grocery store are a little higher or it's a little harder to get car parts, but that you have to send your husband or your son to the front lines for cannon fodder. And that is something that everybody knows that's what they're going for. Like there is not really any doubt about what these men are being sent to the front for. 
They know they're not going to get any training. They're not getting any equipment. People are basically crowdfunding for their husbands and sons and fathers because the Russian army isn't equipping them with much of anything, maybe a uniform, maybe a rusty rifle. But you see families basically sending out fundraising requests to their friends and neighbors saying, hey, we need, you know, uh, a few thousand dollars worth of equipment for our son or father, whatever, because, and and this is even, you know, in, in wealthy Moscow. So there's, there's no, there are no illusions about what they're being sent for. And in those, in that case, people don't, aren't really for it, right? And suddenly uh, a war that they were fine passively supporting seems like much less of a good idea when they have to just go and and be cannon fodder or in, in the Russian parlance, cannon meat. So I think they were quite surprised. Uh, you could see that they weren't prepared for the mass exodus because it took the state many days to catch up to the situation at the various border points at the airports to set up military recruitment points at the border crossings to send lists, draft lists to uh, border patrol agents at the airports and to start checking, you know, passenger lists against, against the draft list. It took them several days. It took them essentially until the exact number that Putin had announced he was calling up had fled the country. So it tells you that on one hand, they had planned for this mobilization for a long time because it, it took, you know, a couple hours for the draft notices to start going out, but they clearly had no idea that this was going to be the response. I don't think they've uh, anticipated this kind of blowback. They, I think they generally had some anticipation of additional instability that was uh, indicated by the fact that, you know, he delayed even this partial mobilization uh, as long as he did and chose to, to pursue a partial instead of a general mobilization. They knew this was going to be uh, create some sort of instability, but even so it's kind of interesting to see the flight of tens of thousands of people, you know, uh, significant protests in ethnic uh, enclaves in the Caucasus and in, in Dagestan and stuff like that. Uh, that's just kind of starting to unfold. I don't know. I mean, they they had uh, apprehensions in general, but I don't think they could have necessarily predicted uh, that, you know, things would quite unfold this way. And you're absolutely right. The target is ethnic minorities. I don't think that's accidental. The Russians are very, very chauvinist. They think that, you know, the ethnic minorities uh, wasting their lives on this war is actually a potentially a good thing that they have less minorities to deal with. They don't have those acute demographic challenges that you hear a lot of the kind of the Russian nationalists talk about. They're out on the periphery. They can't do too much trouble. They're thousands of kilometers away. Uh, but they're also they're also going after folks in in the in the big cities too. And I think they're going to have to dip into those areas eventually. So. I think we're seeing just kind of the start of this next phase of instability as this war uh, does not deliver as promised the, the glories that Putin had assured his population of, that there are sanctions that are uh, having an increasing bite, and uh, there are, are, are folks that are not coming back in large, large numbers. You know, Russia has seen significant protests 
nationwide. The Navalny movement has certainly generated them. Uh, there have been prior uh, rounds of anti-government protests. I'm not sure I've seen ones on this scale uh, that have involved so many people so personally threatened by a specific government policy. Is this different in kind in your judgment from Russian protest movements of the past, or is it just kind of the same sort of thing and on a scale that's very handleable by the repressive apparatus of of the Putin government? Yes and no. So we've seen protests like this, in, including in some of these same regions like Dagestan. I've actually seen them myself. And they happened back in 2017 when the Platon taxing system was introduced on uh, long haul truck drivers who basically, you know, were making, bar- were barely making a living wage. The profit margins were very small. And in response to basically Western sanctions that targeted the Rottenberg brothers, you know, Putin's childhood judo buddies, uh, the Kremlin introduced this new per kilometer tax system for long haul truck drivers that would directly that money would go directly to the Rottenberg brothers. It was basically compensation for the sanctions that would just be taken off the backs of these working class men. And you saw these working class protests that were not political, they were economic in nature. And these miles long, basically protest traffic jams of 18 wheelers stretched out all across the country, including in regions like Dagestan, which are generally, you know, they generally deliver the vote that is needed of them. Their local authorities, you know, rustle up the votes that are needed and they're kind of North Korean in nature. They'll deliver like 93% for Putin or his party. As a result, these kinds of protests are the ones that the Kremlin fears the most because they're not political in nature. These aren't people who are asking for free and fair elections or for Putin to leave office. They're not asking for freedom of speech or a release of political prisoners. They're not even going out for Navalny. They don't like Navalny. They think he's a nationalist and they're scared of him. They're coming out for bread and butter issues. And that scares the Kremlin the most because that's real for them. That's more real to them than the like white collar whiners. So I think these kinds of protests are very scary to them because they're of a similar nature. And, and and these are mothers, right? These aren't men protesting. So it's kind of harder to crack down on women, on mothers, on often Muslim mothers in headscarves and hijabs who are coming out and yelling at, at cops at, you know, there was one extremely powerful video of a mother in Kabardino-Balkaria, which doesn't often protest. Just she's so upset that she tears off her headscarf because it's already falling off because she's so passionately screaming at this cop. And she's saying, I'd like to know how you would feel if your son was fighting down there, you know, and these impassioned, it's harder. It's just harder to, arrest these mothers. Not that they're not doing it. In Tuva, the other day, yesterday, actually, they arrested a mother and her infant in um, a stroller. They had to, they took the stroller and the infant into police custody that, you know, it didn't stop them. 
So, and they're still pretty small. I think people are still so scared because the repressive measures, especially of the last year, have become so extreme and so brutal that pe most people are scared. That's why most people are protesting by leaving. But the fact that these women are like they're they're still more scared of their sons dying. And from what I've heard, women in these Muslim areas are like, at this point, they have nothing to lose. If they lose their children, they don't care if they, you know, go go out into the square and get shot or arrested. So that's a scarier, but still the numbers are like a few hundred here, a few hundred there. That's still, I think the Kremlin is scared of it, but hoping that it'll die down, that they'll get tired of protesting, that if they arrest enough people, it'll stop. But if they don't stop, then they might have a problem on their hands. So the departure numbers are not small in contrast to the protest numbers. And Russia already has something of a shortage of men because of the limited life expectancy of men in Russia. You lose several hundred thousand relatively young men. That's a big deal. You know, are they functionally going to be able to stop this exodus or are they is the alternative to cancel the mobilization or do they just imagine they will ride it out in general they they try to turn the screws and become more repressive and try to ride it out they never really cancel what they're doing because that's a sign of weakness. And if you show any signs of weakness, you're, you're done. So they won't cancel. I can't imagine them canceling the mobilization. A, they feel like they need those men and B, that would just be unimaginable. It would just be an admission of a mistake. And that's just, again, in, in that kind of culture would be basically uh, saying, come and kill me. So I think you're going to see more detentions at border posts, more not allowing men of a certain age to leave the country, which kind of you've seen Ukraine doing since the beginning of the war. Seen Ukraine doing it largely without complaint, right? I mean... Well, yeah, because they're defending their country. And again, that's a morale issue, right? Because they're actually defending their country. Their their war is justified, and if anything, you're seeing Ukrainians shame the men who have managed to leave by hook and by crook uh, and those men being ashamed of themselves. Whereas in Russia, it's like the, the people who are being shamed are the people who are going, who are going and responding to the draft notices and going to the military recruitment posts. It's like, are you dumb? Like, why would you go fight in this criminal war? You know, if you don't have the means to leave the country, go to jail. At least you'll remain alive and you won't have to kill innocent people. So one area where, like, I will say this neutrally, there has been an escalation, not merely a threat of one, is that somebody uh, seems to have blown up Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 underwater somewhere just outside the territorial waters of, of Denmark. First of all, how confident are you that this is a Russian operation, not, as Tucker Carlson seems to believe, a U.S. operation, or as many other people seem to believe, a Ukrainian operation? I don't know. 
I don't think we know yet. And anyone who says they know is lying or they've seen some kind of evidence that none of the rest of us have seen. I can see it plausibly being a number of of culprits, but I don't think we know yet who did it. And what do you think the plausible explanations are? I think for Russia, if, if the argument is that Russia did it, the plausible explanation is it is punishing Europe for supporting Ukraine. And, you know, Putin repeatedly blaming the West for doing this, both in his annexation speech and the day before and calling it terrorism. You know, the more they kind of vociferously deny it, the more I'm like, oh, you did it, didn't you? Then it makes it like, oh, well, then why should, because there are other pipelines going to Europe from Russia. Then I, then it's like, well, then why should we supply you with any gas at all? And uh, gives them more of a kind of gas-related causes belly to not supply Europe with gas heading into the winter and to amplify the energy crisis in Europe that's already become pretty intense and it's, you know, it's not even October and to basically sow chaos in Europe and make the European public less supportive of supporting Ukraine, create political chaos, topple certain governments in in Europe that support Ukraine, etc. So I could see it being Russia for those reasons. I could see it being, you know, the Baltic countries or Poland or Ukraine doing it in order to basically kick Germany in the ass and say, you know, speed it up and and stop being so dependent on Russian gas and, you know, find find alternatives faster. Because what would be crazy to me, but, you know, the Russians do do this all the time, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face, is that as much as, because it was like a, it was kind of, the the gas wars were kind of mutually assured destruction. Right. And as much as Russia threatened Europe with shutting off the gas, it was like, well, sure, but you need to sell the gas. Like, you can't eat the gas, you can't. You can't actually put it in your people's cars. Like it, it funds your budget. You can't pay pensions and gas. All those gas pipelines go west, not east, right? Like the, Russia doesn't really have that many LNG terminals. People are already not buying as much Russian oil, and they're buying it at, at you know at discounts. And by people, I mean countries. You know, and so much of the Russian federal budget is based on oil and gas. So okay, if you're not selling any gas to Europe, how are you going to fill your coffers? How are you going to pay for your weapons? How are you going to pay your soldiers? How are you going to pay your pensioners? You know, you're already hearing reports out of Russia that pensioners are getting certain like pension bonuses and cost of living adjustments that they've gotten, these kind of cost of living, uh, like COLA bonuses that they've gotten in recent years taken away in the last few months because they're like, oh, sorry, we're helping the Donbass. So, you know, when you stop gas exports to Europe, you have to stop paying for certain things at home. And that's also politically risky when, as you can see, the political situation inside Russia is not as stable as the Kremlin thought. So, But they were not selling gas through these pipelines anyway. Nord Stream 2 had never opened and they had already shut down 
production or, or through Nord Stream 1 in precisely right. the biting your nose to spite your face kind of way that you describe, you know, see Germany will will show right. you. And so the marginal cost of damage to the pipeline is really about the speed and cost of getting them up and running at some later date, right? If they can be repaired. But yeah, I think um, before they could always just turn Nord Stream 1 back on. And and they could always say like, oh yeah, it's just, we're just, uh, we're just repairing them. And, you know, we're all, they, they could always be about to turn it back on. And are you confident uh, that the prevalent idea in the Trumpist right among Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk that this may have been a U.S. operation has no basis to it at all? I mean, I don't know. Again, I, I don't think we know yet. I don't think we've seen much evidence. Right now, it's all like deciding on a verdict just based on motive. And I don't I don't think we know enough yet. Yeah. So we'll have, I, I mean, one of the interesting features is that it's not clear what a mechanism by which we would make that judgment would look like, right? I mean, what presume, do you mean? Well, so like who's the who's the authority who gets to pronounce on this and say, ah, we are the investi- the relevant investigative authority for this part of international waters, and we determine that you know it's it's not like it's not like when that airliner I mean, was shot I don't, down. I don't, Look, personally, if a European intelligence agency or the American intelligence community came out and said, we've assessed that it was the Russians, I would believe them more than I would believe people on Twitter or Tucker Carlson. Like that is a more credible source to me. So you're just waiting for some credible authority to make an assessment rather than making it on the basis of perceptions of motive and interest alone. Yeah, I think that would give me, that would at least, you could at least then say like, according to X, it was the Russians, right? Like right now it's, you know, even after the Malaysian airliner went down, we knew pretty quickly who it was because the separatists, we immediately had the overheard call from the separatists being like, oh shit, we shot down an airliner. Right. So. Yeah. This was you know, a little professional than that. Yeah. Yeah. We know a little bit like, like it has to be somebody who kind of has the capabilities, but in that neighborhood, a lot of people have the capabilities, you know? I'm not agnostic. And I think that's the product of having served in government. Democratic governments are loath to undertake these kind of clandestine, uh, you know, dirty tricks type of campaigns. So it's not going to be the US. It's not going to be the UK. It's not going to be the Germans. It's probably not going to be anybody in the EU. It's unlikely that it's Poland, although, the, the, the you know, now we're, we're starting to get into a less, frankly, clarity. It's not likely to be the Baltics. It's possible, but unlikely that it's uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, it's kind of the Ukrainians have shown a enormous amount of capability to do all sorts of really, really interesting, cool stuff to the Russians, but they're unlikely to be effective uh, in the Baltics at these kind of activities. Uh, it's it's not in their bailiwick. I think given the fact that you've uh, we've we've used 
deduction, we've eliminated, uh, as Sherlock Holmes would say, all the things that are impossible. And you know what we're left with is 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 uh, likely. I think it's likely, quite likely, that it's the Russians, uh, the Russians, indicating that this is an area where they could take additional action. The Russians testing, as I predicted they would for a long time, security, energy security, or physical security of of NATO. And uh, we're going to find that out relatively, you know, soon. But I think it was the Russians. There are some other technical issues uh, as to how you know how you could conduct maritime or, or uh, subsurface activities. And Russia has a lot more capabilities uh, there than, frankly, just about anybody else. I think it's a warning, and I think that the Russians. Ha- this this kind of goes back to something that you you said earlier. You know, what was Putin expecting? Does he understand like the repercussions of some of these escalations, these annexations? I think the fact is that there's an, ex- an a clearer expectation that they don't think things are going to normalize with the West anytime soon. They think that you know the Russophobes are 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 there to stay, and they don't think that Nord Stream Two or Nord Stream One uh, are likely to be in play, and that they're they're okay sending the signal that there is nothing to do for like this win- this coming winter with regards to gas transit. We are going to leave it there. Alex Vindman, Julia Yaffe, thanks so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I did it myself. Hey, folks. We really need you to sign up for Lawfare's Patreon. Become a material supporter today at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. You know why, and you can avoid the ads. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.